who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. You are listening to episode 11 of Quarter Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. Written and read by Nathan Lowell. Previously on Quarter Share. Bev is about a meter and three quarters of pure menace, and she wanted me, 80 kilos of coward, to watch her back. Looking up, she gave a brief nod in my direction. Your boy toy can have the same deal if he likes. I blushed. Bev smirked. How about it, Ish? You want to buy a new belt? It's one thing to speculate idly over what to buy and what to sell. This is actually real creds and real risk. Then I remembered the pallets of Sarabanda Dark down in the pantry and realized that what had been idle speculation for me had real implications for Pip. Chapter 18, Gugara Orbital, 2351, December 11. Having the duty was almost a relief. It was nice being able to come and go, I admit, and getting to know some of the people I'd only see in the mess line was better. The only drawback was that I felt compelled to take advantage of being able to leave the ship, even when I didn't have any good reason to go. Not that I hadn't enjoyed the day out and about, but it still felt good to take a bit of refuge in the ship. Pip joined us for breakfast in the galley, and, other than a few waggled eyebrows in my direction, didn't mention the boy-toy incident again. After he ate, he waved and headed out. "'Gotta see a lady about a belt,' he said with a grin." When he was gone, I settled into the comfortable and comforting routine of port-duty mess-deck. Cookie and I split the omelet-making, and I helped him make the soup stock for lunch by peeling the carrots and onions. I hung around, and he gave me pointers on making biscuits. We made way too many for lunch, but he said, "'We'll make a traditional biscuit and gravy for breakfast tomorrow. They'll be perfect for that.' After lunch, I settled on the mess-deck with my tablet and a fresh cup of coffee, and started looking over the food handler exam. It didn't look any more difficult than the cargo handler, but I remembered how the actual exam had taken some less-than-straightforward twists and tried to consider what the steward exam might do in a similar vein. I hadn't realized how pleasant the mess deck was to just relax on. The seats, while unpadded, were still comfortable, even if they were bolted to the tables. Coffee was close by, and cookies rummaging in the kitchen and occasional humming made it seem homey in a way. Occasionally somebody would stop by for coffee and one of the pastries that Cookie left out while in port. 
Sometimes they'd stop and talk, and sometimes just nod, continue on their way. It was an exceptionally pleasant way to spend the afternoon. Dinner time rolled around, and Cookie was putting together a baked pasta dish with beefalo and a soft white cheese that they made locally on Gugara. I took a couple of loaves of Cookie's yeast bread and made garlic bread out of them, grilling the loaves gently before chopping them into rough chunks and tumbling them into a towel-lined basket. It was, of course, buffet-style. Set-up, service, and take-down were easy, and I had clean-up done by 1900. I went to the gym and ran a few laps before ducking into the sauna. When I got back to the birthing area, Pip was waiting with a bundle of belts draped off the side of the bunk and a huge grin. "'My gods, Pip, how many did you buy?' Eighty, he said. Eighty-one, actually.' "'What?' I exclaimed. "'How did you do that?' "'I found Druce right where you said,' he told me. "'Druce? Yeah, Druce Martin. That's the woman you met. You were right. That rack of belts was spectacular. I talked to her near closing time and told her I wanted to buy a lot to take off Planet for trade.' and asked for a wholesale price. We haggled for a while until she had to leave for the day. She started packing up her stuff. That bench is mounted on a grav pallet, so all she had to do was power it up and push it to the lift. I helped her push, and we continued to haggle. Pip paused to chuckle. She's a salty old bird, but I gotta give you credit. You know quality goods when you see it. At one point I mentioned that you and Bev had each bought eight belts yesterday. I forget how it came up. Something about the price she could take before her husband would beat her or something. I snorted. <laughs> she used that same line on us. Anyway, she stops and says, Butchy-looking femme, black leathers and an attitude. It's got a skinny boy toy in tow. I just groaned because Pip was enjoying this way too much. I told her, yeah, that's them. But by then we're at her locker on level five. and She opens it up to move the bench in for the night. My God's ish. The place was stuffed with belts. So she says, Okay, for the woman and her boy, I'll do this. And she points out like three bales of belts rolled up against the bulkhead. There had to be three or four hundred of them. She says, Pick any eighty. I'll let you have them for four hundred. Final offer. But you have to take them off station and sell them. I thought you said you got eighty-one, I asked. Pip nodded. I did. Well, I was picking out the belts, and you probably know as well as I do that there wasn't a bad one in the bunch. She was busy on her bench. I didn't think too much of it. I was pulling out the belts and trying to keep track of how many I had and wishing I had enough money to take them all. All the while, that aroma of leather is just all around, and it was amazing. Pip was talking so fast I thought he was going to tangle his tongue and strangle himself. So after about a quarter stand, I give up trying to pick and choose and just start counting out random 80 belts, and we sign the chits and transfer the funds. Oh, that's so much less nerve-wracking than dealing with cash, she said as an aside. Anyway, I'm bundling up the belts to bring back, and she hands me the one that she's been working on all this time. Your friend. He was a nice boy, she says, as she gives it to me. This is for him, she says. Pip pulls a single belt down from his bunk and hands it to me. It was exquisitely crafted, with an ivy vine pattern running the full length. I'd never seen anything quite so beautiful, and my eyes caught some lettering in the middle of the vines, an ornate script that blended with the curves of vines and leaves boy toy. Pip was killing himself laughing, and I didn't care. That belt was beautiful, and she'd made it for me. Wait a minute, I said. You got 80 belts for 400 creds? He nodded. That's like five creds each. He nodded again. Yep. What if we can't sell them all on Marguerite? I asked. He shrugged. I hope we don't. We need to sell a few to get some capital, but those are going to be worth a fortune in St. Cloud. I just stood there, leaning on my bunk, turning the supple leather over and over in my hands, fingers tasting the textures that the old woman, Drews, had pressed into it. It was amazing. 
So what did you do with the rugs and robes idea? I asked finally. I saw some of those at the flea market, and you're right about the mass, although they were nice. The fur was much softer than I expected. I added them to the empty container, Pip said. They took up the last of the cash and the final mass allotments almost perfectly. I still think they're the right cargo for Marguerite. May as well have the ship get some advantage from it. Do you think he's going to actually do it? I asked, referring to Mr. Maxwell. Pip shook his head. No, I doubt it. I got to thinking about it, and that's a lot of creds to bet on a whim. I nodded. Makes sense. See what you can come up with, but actually betting on it? As you say, that's a lot of creds. I'm relieved, actually, Pip said. If he'd done it and it went badly, I'd feel very guilty about reducing share. Yeah, but the other side of that coin, if it goes empty, it's not contributing anything to share, I pointed out. Pip shrugged. True, but we got a lot of bets riding on this next leg. Our belts, the extra stores. Adding in a container that I picked, whoosh, that's a lot for one lowly mess attendant to take responsibility for. He was smiling, though. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Chapter 19, Gugara Orbital. 2351, December 13. The next morning we left Gugara en route to Marguerite. To mark the occasion, Cookie brought out a bucket of the Sarabanda Dark, and I made an urn full of it when we set the normal watch. He even had those little signs on chains like you see in the coffee bars, one for Jartmo Arabasti and the other for Sarabanda Dark. He laughed in delight when I hung him on the valves for each urn. It was a short trip, twenty-one days to the jump point, and Marguerite Station was only seven days on the other side. Voyage durations were dictated by the placement of the system's orbital station. Jump points have to be outside a gravitational limit where the influence of the system was low enough that the jump drives could overcome the residual gravity, basically out on the periphery in the deep dark. Every system also has a limited band where planets can support life as we know it. That band is called the habitable zone, and it exists as a spherical shell around the primary star. 
Its location depends on the size and temperature of the star, but it's usually deep in the system's gravity well, where the jump drives can't operate. Normally, the orbital is in geostationary orbit around a planet in the habitable zone, so the ship has a long transit time between station and the jump point. Twenty to thirty days under sail was not uncommon between station and jump. Marguerite Station was an exception. There was no suitable planet in the habitable zone of the Marguerite system, so no orbital. Marguerite Station was out on the edge. It didn't orbit a planet, it orbited the sun. In Marguerite, the population lived on the asteroid belt just outside the second of two gas giant planets, and the station was situated to serve that population. We didn't have to claw our way all the way into the gravity well to get there, and we wouldn't have to claw our way out again. So the run from Gugara to Marguerite was a short one. We were all in pretty good spirits on the way out of Gugara. I was feeling relaxed and refreshed after my short excursions on the orbital, and enjoying the new tasks in the galley working with Cookie. I was looking forward to the food handler exam, and thinking about trying to do the ordinary spacer test as well. Rationally, I suppose I should have started with the steward exam. Ah, well. Pip was celebrating his deal on the belts and occasionally ribbing me about boy toy, although never when Beverly was around. The store's accounting hadn't been included in the trip to Gugara, but the savings would be factored into the shares when we got to Marguerite. It wasn't a lot, but every little bit helped. Second day out of Gugara, Pip was looking up Sarabanda dark prices in Marguerite and trying to get a feel for whether they were rising or falling. Coffee is one of those volatile markets that operates as much on emotion as fact, and he was concerned that the reports of the bumper crop in Gugara might be driving the price down in Marguerite, even in advance of a larger supply. The short run counted against us on that, because it meant that information and goods moved that much more easily between the two systems. I was sweeping out the galley when he gave a strangled cry. I thought he was choking on a biscuit, but he was pointing at his tablet. The empty container wasn't empty any more. Pip had pulled up its contents and found that it was filled with the exact list of items he'd given to Mr. Maxwell. Cookie came to look over our shoulders and gave a little, hmm, before wandering off. Pip said, I don't know whether to cheer or cry. I shrugged. Well, your ideas are getting a good shake-out, if nothing else. Yeah, he said, but what if I'm wrong? Look, the ship has seventy-one other containers, right? He nodded. If this one had stayed empty, how many creds would it earn? None, Pip admitted. Worst case is what? None of this stuff sells in Marguerite, and we need to dump it to take on a scheduled cargo. Be a ten-kilocred loss, he said. Realistically, is that likely, I asked. No, he finally admitted. In fact, he pulled up another manifest. We're scheduled to have two more empty containers when we leave. Okay, so worst case is we can't sell it and we have to drag it to St. Cloud with us. What are your projections on St. Cloud? Will that stuff sell there if it doesn't move on Marguerite? He tapped keys, first on his tablet and then on the portable. He was in zombie mode, but his color started looking a little more normal. He'd stopped hyperventilating, so I went back to sweeping up. Finally, he said, Yeah, actually, the market is slightly better in St. Cloud. Okay, I said. So it wasn't such a hypothetical case as you thought, but it's not all riding on one throw of the dice, either. Okay, he said finally. You're right. That's just that I'd made up my mind that Mr. Maxwell was just testing me. Seeing that container show up full was a shock. I nodded then. Okay, you want another shock? Pip looked at me warily. What? Start planning what you'd put in those empties, because I'll bet you Mr. Maxwell is down here the day after transition to give you that little assignment as well. Pip looked startled. He wouldn't. But the look on his face said he didn't believe it himself. 
Well, maybe not. But you at least better figure out what to reload that container with, assuming it gets emptied in Marguerite and earns a bit of profit besides, I observed. Pip gulped and started hammering on keys. Shipboard routine settled around us like a comfy old sweater. The daily mess was enhanced by the availability of the new stores. For the first few days out of Gugara we had fresh greens and fruits, and as they began to taper off we still had the occasional urn of the nutty rich Sarabanda to break up the monotony of the Arabasti. Cookie had stocked a lot of new canned fruit, and he pulled a couple of cases out of our trade goods, urging me to experiment with fruit crisps and cobblers. It was rather a lot of fun, and livened up the luncheon preparation for me. The crew's sweet tooth seemed to appreciate it as well. Evenings were spent in the gym and sauna, and I soon realized I was in the best physical condition of my life. I spent the afternoon break alternating between studying for steward and hanging out in environmental. I really wanted to get my hand in with some of the routine environmental chores, so I could see if I'd like it if I wound up in a slot like that. One day, about a week out of Gugara, I went down to find that they were engaged in dredging out sludge. The process wasn't difficult physically. There was a bit of odor, but nothing like you might expect. It's just that it was mucky. The sludge was from the water treatment plant and had been biologically stabilized to the point where it was practically sterile. But the sludge settled into the bottom of the water treatment ponds, and even after the water had been pumped out, it was still wet, sticky, and slimy. We used mechanical scoops to load the sludge deposits into shallow metal containers, what the environmental gang called loaf pans, that were about a meter and a half long, a meter wide, and half a meter deep. When full, the pans were run through a combination freezer-vacuum compartment where the water was sublimated out of it. After the loaves were dry, they were knocked out of the pans, wrapped in a sealant film, and stacked in storage for disposition at the next port. One pond yielded about five of these large loaves. The pans were impossibly heavy when wet, but the sludge cakes were about the same mass and consistency as polyfoam. One person could lift one, but handling it was awkward because of its size and shape. As we were finishing up, Diane told me they'd be doing it one more time before we hit Marguerite, but in the other pond. I confess, it wasn't as gross as I thought it was going to be, just grubby. I left them loading pans into the dryer, and I went to shower before heading out to the galley for dinner mess. As I was getting into the shower, the raspy buzz of the fire alarm went off, followed by, This is a drill, this is a drill. Fire in the engineering birthing area. All hands to fire and damage control systems. Fire in the engineering birthing area. All hands to fire and damage control systems. This is a drill. This is a drill. I played the shower quickly over my head and zipped into a fresh ship suit in less than a tick. In less than two, I was in the galley where I found Pip and Cookie working on dinner. Cookie called in and we continued with getting dinner ready. I felt like I was beginning to get the hang of it at last. Nineteen days out of Gugara, two days before the jump into Marguerite, Pip picked up the data beacon and downloaded the current marking conditions for Marguerite. He spent almost the next whole day revising and refining his models. The deeper he got, the more glum he seemed. As we did the final jump prep, twenty-one days out of Gugara, he sighed and threw down his stylus, rubbing his eyes with the heels of his hands. Problems, I asked? Maybe, he said. The problem is I can't tell, really. It looks like the coffee prices have capsized. The market appears to be saturated with Sarabanda Dark, and oddly the wholesale price of Arabasti, which you can usually get for three credits a bucket, is now twenty-two creds. If these prices are correct, you can buy Sarabanda for less than we've just paid in Gugara, and there isn't a single bucket of Arabasti for sale in the system. Cookie was listening to our conversation and smiled. I'm glad I laid in extra Arabasti in Darbat, then. 
Pip laughed. Good point. He consulted the pantry inventories and said, Okay, we have 68 full buckets of Arabasti. We paid an average of three creds a bucket. Net on a bucket of Arabasti would be 19. We paid an average of eight creds a bucket for 150 buckets of Sarabanda. Net on a bucket of Sarabanda is a loss. We can buy it here for five creds. Wait, I said. You're telling me we lose money if we sell the Sarabanda in Marguerite? Pip nodded. Exactly. We got twice as much Sarabanda because we bought it to trade, not drink. How much Arabasti do we need to make St. Cloud? I considered. We use a bucket a day. How long is the Marguerite of St. Cloud run? Pip pulled up the schedule. Eight days to jump and twenty-eight on the backside. St. Cloud's a weak sun. The orbital's a long way down the well. Five weeks in roundish numbers, I said. And we're a week out of Marguerite? Pip nodded. About that. Okay, call it six weeks. Between the rest of this run, the import time, the run to St. Cloud, we need about forty-two buckets of coffee. Call it forty-five for safety. If we brew half Sarabanda, which the crew likes just fine, that means we only need mm, twenty-two, twenty-three buckets of Arabasti. Cookie spoke up then. May I suggest we reserve only two buckets of Arabasti and plan to sell the rest in Marguerite? If we shift to Sarabanda now, and only brew the Arabasti for special occasions, we can sell sixty-six buckets, and we'll actually turn a nice profit. That will give us capital to buy some more Sarabanda, lowering our average cost. Can we do that, I asked? Cookie shrugged. Why not? The Sarabanda is actually a better quality coffee, and the crew, as you so eloquently pointed out, young Ishmael, likes it just fine. Personally, I prefer it. Pip started tapping again and nodding. Yeah, that would work. He tapped some more and nodded some more. The prices are holding in St. Cloud. Actually, they're a little better, I think. Cookie nodded. Very good, then, yes. I think that is our best course. How are the mushroom prices looking? Pip grinned. They're good. Prices for fresh are holding steady, but the dried have actually started dropping. Three varieties are available in commercial quantities, and we can get two other artisan varieties in large enough bulk to make it worth stocking. Mushrooms? I asked. Cookie nodded. It's a kind of edible fungus. I huffed. I know what mushrooms are. We've never had them on the ship, have we? Cookie shook his head. Yes, but not in some time. They are difficult to procure and expensive when they are available. Marguerite is one of the few sources on this end of the galaxy where they're commonly raised. I rounded on Pip. That's what you meant. Pip nodded with a cat and canary grin. Yep, most people don't know about Marguerite mushrooms. Few people consider mushrooms food. Any insight on the empty container? I asked Pip. Depends on budget, he said. Freeze-dried mushrooms would be best. They don't mass very much, and they've got a good upside potential. We can get container quantities of them, but they'd cost upwards of 50 kilocreds. The upside is a container of good quality freeze-dried mushrooms would net 100 to 150 kilocreds in St. Cloud, even more in Dunsany Roads. I whistled. Not bad for spare mass. What else could we get? Pip browsed through his sources for a moment and said, Well, there's no container-sized lots, but there are several dozen pallets of stuff. Quartz, barrel, jade, lapis, even some emerald and ruby. I'll be the bulk and industrial-grade stuff, not jewel-grade. Prospectors and miners pick out the best pieces as they go. Minerals wouldn't take up as much volume because they're a lot denser. But the initial cost of the minerals is a lot higher. Profit potential on the other end isn't as high. What would you recommend to Mr. Maxwell if he were standing right behind you, Pip? Cookie asked. Pip blew out his breath noisily while he considered. <sighs> Sounds funny, but I'd leave the minerals and fill the container with mushrooms. 
While a kilo of mushrooms won't fetch the same price as a kilo of rubies, you can put a lot more kilos of mushrooms in a container for the same investment. It's not the mass as much as how much it would cost. 600 tons is 600 tons. We could fill a container for 50 kilocreds. Profit on them would be upwards of 100 to 150. Prices for mushroom in St. Cloud and Dunsany are still quite high. A container of mixed minerals, on the other hand, would cost maybe as much as 300 kilocreds, maybe more, and be lucky to get 400 on the other end, which would net you about the same profit, but the difference in initial investment is a lot higher on the minerals. Profit ratio on the mushrooms is likely to exceed 200%, while the ratio of a similar container full of minerals would be maybe 25 or 30%. From behind Pip, Mr. Maxwell said, Thank you, Mr. Costas. A cogent and reasonable assessment. Please notify me if you identify any other opportunities. Pip just closed his eyes and didn't appear to breathe for a long time. Thanks for listening to Episode 11 of Quarter Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. The music is from the Lucky Black Cat, a hornpipe in A minor recorded by James Curran and available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.durandus.com/golden. <laughs>